Hi, I'm Fabian Dodard. I'm the co-founder of Dodard Interactive, and you're listening to the App Guy podcast. The App Guy podcast, straight from your host, Paul, the App Guy, sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. And now, Paul, the App Guy. Welcome to another episode of the App Guy podcast. I am your host, it's Paul Kemp, and I am going to go straight into the guest interview uh, today because uh, we have someone who's going to be incredibly relevant to what we're trying to do. And one of the, uh, obviously the big hurdles for us is building apps. Um, to build apps, we tend to need money. And many of the listeners have come to me uh, asking how to raise uh, money, how to get investment, how to perhaps use other platforms to to actually get validation of the idea. And so I reached out to uh, our next guest. His name is Mike Davis, and he is the founder and CEO of uh, StoryPress, and he is going to talk to us a lot about apps, raising money, and Kickstarter. So, Mike, it's a warm welcome to the App Guy podcast. Uh, thanks, Paul. I'm excited to uh, talk about all the intricacies and lessons learned with fundraising and developing and launching a software app, um, being not a software developer myself. So I've had to use every trick in the tool bag to, uh, to get people motivated and, uh, and doing great work um, to carry out this vision. Yeah, well, let's, let's get straight into that because that is one of the most common things that I get asked and also actually one of the biggest challenges for the startup founders that we tend to interview is how to go about convincing the world of your idea, not actually the world, but investors and uh, getting support and funding for your idea so that you don't have to burn that credit card and, and get into a whole load of debt. So can you perhaps walk us through your journey with uh, your, your app and your idea? Well, this is probably my third um, startup project. So I've had two you know, major lessons learned before. But this is the first time I've done it full-time. I've left my day job as a mechanical engineer. And what I have found is you need a prototype. Most investors nowadays, especially for software and tech, they all know that it's actually really easy and really cheap to make a prototype. You have companies like Amazon Web Services, Heroku, Rackspace, you know, what Facebook is doing with Parse, like there's virtually no excuse that you can't at least get a prototype. It's not like we're talking about a cure for AIDS here. Um, it doesn't take much money and much time to just get something that works. Because a lot of investors, especially, you know, maybe it's changing now with the economy, but a couple of years ago when I was doing my fundraising, the idea of writing a check just based on a PowerPoint, I think those days are over. Uh, unless you have a huge win under your belt, uh, you need more than a PowerPoint. So, what I did was I had just quit my day job, so I still had you know some money left, and I hired a designer contractor and a developer contractor, and for about fifteen thousand dollars, was able to make a prototype. And fifteen thousand dollars is way too low for an investor to take you seriously. And I think that you know it's not. I mean, most professionals, whether it's a credit card or borrowing from their parents, coming up with fifteen k usually isn't that tall of an order. And I think investors you know, like to see that you're scrappy enough where maybe 15000 to them is nothing. But if you don't have it, but you get your mom and your uncle, you know, someone throws in 2500 2500 you prove to someone you had an idea, you raise money, you figured out how, how to start a corporation and sell stock, use that money. You know, probably you don't pay yourself. You give half to a designer, you know, half to a developer. Maybe you throw in a little bit of equity to get you know, the price down. But you generally have to make at least some type of functional prototype to show it to an investor. 
That's a very good lesson learned for a start because, you know, we have had uh, experiences where uh, app developers or uh, entrepreneurs end up spending a year, a year and a half uh, actually building their app. And then they, uh, the first validation of that idea is when they hit the app store. And obviously that now with the app store, you know, we've learned that the first seven days in the app stores are incredibly important. And it's almost like you need uh, a, a built up audience before you actually hit uh, with your idea. So, so did, um, to tell us then how you actually approached investors and uh, and I think perhaps you could talk through your experience with Kickstarter. So I had made my prototype and I believe strongly that when you're hiring someone, it needs to be their full-time job. I've done the whole night and weekend, weekend warrior, and that's when, you know, 30 to 60 days worth of work take a year and a half, like in your last example, because you're only doing a couple hours a week. and the market changes so quickly. If you have a good idea, you need to be lean. You need to get it out there tomorrow. So I actually disagree with the premise that the first seven days matter. Um, I'm of the lean school of business. So we got our, our 1.0 minimum viable product out the door. No one was waiting for it. No one knew about it. And we spent all $1,000 on a little ad campaign, uh, a little bit of money, you know, writing press releases, trying to get on local TV. And we... We got about 10,000 downloads in 90 days, and then I was able to kind of leverage that success and show that to an investor. Look, I, got, I did this with you know, fifteen dollars to $20,000, got a prototype, got users, got users creating stories in my case. Then I started to say, now I, can, now I have something to show investors. And while I was preparing for that, I decided to do a Kickstarter. Uh, partially for the money, although we didn't have a huge goal. It was only $15,000, so it certainly wasn't going to move the needle too much. But I wanted to do it to prove market validation. So, And I also wanted the free publicity. So we did the Kickstarter uh, about a year and a half ago, early 2013. Uh, it's an incredible amount of work. I don't know how much you want me to devote to Kickstarter, but we ended up just beating our goal, um, $15,700. And... I, the money was secondary because I don't know if everyone realizes this, but to run a Kickstarter campaign successfully, unless you're entering with a huge brand and a huge following, there's a lot of PR money. There's some ad money. Uh, it takes you know, a lot of effort, a lot of people, a lot of social media, a lot of promoted posts to draw attention to your Kickstarter page if no one's heard of you. So it was almost a wash financially. As you know, Kickstarter even takes you know 5% for them, 5% for Amazon. So we didn't really make much money, but the 30 days that we were live, we had uh, probably you know two to three thousand downloads out of the ten thousand that we had. A lot came just from the PR, and then being able to say you've had a successful Kickstarter added tremendous credibility. So when I was fundraising, that was uh, March 2013, and I was fundraising you know May, June, and July 2013. I was able to say product. I got my product to market. Got my first ten thousand users had a successful Kickstarter campaign. It was just a piece of the puzzle. It wasn't you know, like a, a make or break. It wasn't you know, the pivotal moment of our company. It's just one more thing to check off to make an investor say, okay, I think they're onto something because StoryPress isn't like a lot of other applications where it's just a better mousetrap where, okay, I know there's a market for editing pictures. Look at Instagram, look at whatever. I have the next best thing. It's going to be huge. People are not going home and telling stories. So I have a more, it's a bigger opportunity, but it's a bigger hurdle. 
So Kickstarter was able to help me justify that there is an unmet need for what we're building. Well, Aviv, I think we'll focus a little bit on the funding side as well, because uh, as I said in the intro, I, I get a lot of questions about how to go about funding. And uh, you know, I, what first of all, I'm learning from you, Mike, is that it's incredibly important to do all the hard work and uh, you know, I have had entrepreneurs come to me with an idea and they expect the investors will be jumping at the idea because they've got this amazing idea and there's no validation, there's no history with the idea. It's just an idea. And uh, to do all that hard work and preparation then get, gives you more credibility when you meet the investors. But what I'd like to know, Mike, and I think Abster Tribe would love to know as well, is how would you go about actually approaching these people? Where do you find them? And uh, what, what sort of package do you need to put together uh, to, to present your, yourself and your pitch? Because they must get hundreds of pitches per day, these guys. So the process starts months, maybe even a year before you actually ask for the check. Especially if you're starting where I was, where I don't have a history of you know, founding Twitter. And you're, an un, you're a new person to them. You don't have the track record. So... There's a, an expression that I'm sure you and your listeners have heard. It's, you know, if you want money, ask for advice. If you want um, advice, ask for money. So I asked for advice. I, I, I wasn't ready to ask for money. Um, there's no way to value the idea. It wasn't even in the market yet at the time. So I had done some research. I'm in Austin, Texas. There's uh, various communities of angel investors. They have... You know, office hours, I have, you know, like speed dating with investors, just general networking. So I would go to these events asking for advice. I would bring a prototype, show them what I'm doing. I'd ask them what, what, what milestone would make sense for you? What would I need to show you? Is this the type of thing you would invest in? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, treat investors like royalty, which is fine. But, you know, our time is valuable too. And you can tell in 30 seconds if Maybe they only invest in B2B and you're a B2C. Um, or maybe they only do you know, B round and you're at a C round. So you can narrow it down pretty quick. But I would ask for advice and I would follow up. If they say, I think you should you know, do X, Y, and Z in this order, if you agree, you know, go do it. And then come back you know, 30 days later, 45 days later. I took your advice. I did this. You know, it worked or it didn't work, but this is the lesson learned. And I think that... You build a rapport with them and you demonstrate that you're coachable, which is a word I've heard my investors use all the time. Um, investors, yes, they're looking to make money, but angel investors, this is also a hobby and it's also fun for them. They've are, most of them are very wealthy and I can't speak for every investor, but I know ours, even if they had a 10x return, would not change their quality of life. So this is as much of a hobby, enjoy, they have to have fun with it and they have to like the founder and the founding team. So just building the rapport, showing that you're coachable, that you take their advice seriously, whether it works or doesn't work, you listen to it, you have a well thought out you know, reason why you're continuing or not continuing. That's what they like to see. And it, the hard part is, you, know, you might do that with two or three or four of them. One of them has to eventually you know, go first. And I think what happened with me was I had done all that and it was some things were working, some things were not. And it you know, gets to a point where you're running on fumes and it's like, hey, I've you know, done everything. It's making progress. We're, you know, they, they feel like they're part of the team. 
And when you start saying that, you know, we only have, you know, four weeks of cash on hand and all this is going to die, you know, that's when you can, you know, maybe get one of them to say, all right, well, how much do you need to get to the next milestone? I need 200,000. They think about it. Maybe they put in 50. And once you get the first person to do it, the rest are much easier. In fact, out of all the work that I did, I met one investor, I mean, out of many, who eventually wrote the check, and then the rest were friends of his. You know, they came in because of his reputation. He had some major, major nine-figure wins on his belt. So when they heard that this investor was in, it it didn't really matter who I was or what the idea was. You know, once you kind of land a whale, um, you have a whole bunch of momentum and almost get the rest for free. Uh, We'd love to hear your experience, what you were feeling like. Take us to that that time when you, that you had that uh, first, I guess, investor that, that backed you, what, what did it feel like? Well, it felt like a major relief because this is someone that I had been working with for about probably 18 months of various advice, meeting for coffee once a month. And I had done a lot of other investors too in case this one didn't pan out. But I had this feeling from the beginning, you know, we're from you know, the same hometown. I mean, he's older than me, but same age as my parents and they grew up in the same neighborhood. So, and we've always kind of gotten along personally as well. So I, I kind of knew that I had a feeling he would be the one. And I, I did get to that point where we have only a few weeks of cash on hand and it takes time to close a funding round, even when the person says yes, which is another story we could talk about. But I went into a meeting with them and a few people and it, I brought my game face and literally I told myself, I'm selling them on why they're giving me a check or they're selling me on why they can't. But someone's making a sale today, and I obviously did very well, and I thought I nailed it. And then probably within an hour after the meeting, I got the email saying that you know, he would put in this at this valuation and you know, some board position. So, and then he's like, and then we're going to go raise the rest together, but let's kind of agree to this. So it was a major relief, but there was no time for celebration because – the way these seed rounds work is it's all or nothing. It's not like I'm raising 200, a guy puts in 50, he writes a check and I can keep working while you raise the other 150. You can get away with that if it's a convertible note. But for a seed round, um, I had to get that 150 and we still only have three weeks of cash on hand. So it just, it was a great day, but you know, the next morning you're, I'm just running another race and it's yeah. getting, yeah, it's getting soon, that round close it's in soon out. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, that's excellent. You know, it feels like uh, it, it brings to life just how hard uh, this is in terms of uh, taking your idea and then working so hard. And, and I absolutely resonate with what you are saying, because part of my belief system is that you have to show that you can add value to the people of influence before you can ask for something. And, you know, in your case, it took a year and a half And I just want everyone who's listening to this right now to think about the people of influence that they could uh, start helping, start adding value and then work on those relationships and, you know, use the tools to keep in touch with them. And and like you say, meet for a coffee if it's local and uh, and then just take time and be patient. And then eventually, uh, I guess they trust you enough to to, um, you know, have a bet on you. So uh, that's a wonderful story. And I would I would say that charity starts at home. And that I, I think investors feel a little bit more comfortable that you, even if it's $1,000 from 10 friends, family, aunts, uncle, that you've started a corporation, you've sold stock, you've used that money to, you know, 10000 is not going to take over the world, but you got something to market and got someone to use it. 
And I, I just can't emphasize enough how I think like that initial cycle is so important. Yeah, and I was just thinking in terms of the those those conversations you were having, the chats with the investors, what stuff did you talk about? What was really important to them? Is it the number of downloads? Is it uh, the length of time using the app? Is it the business model of the potential ways to earn money from the the app, you know, perhaps you could talk us through what we need to think about from a, the statistics standpoint. And so we can focus on that ourselves. Well, it's a little bit harder in my case, because if it was just a better mousetrap, if I had the next PowerPoint, I could say how many people use PowerPoint, how much money people pay for PowerPoint. You know, it's a much more straightforward business case with StoryPress really trying to be a new social network built on stories, the, the Instagram of stories, if you will. We have to look at how big is the addressable market? Why do we think that there's an unmet need and have we proven it? You don't need you know, millions of people if you know, we only have $1,000 to spend on advertising and we get you know, 800 people doing it, you could back out, oh, $1.20 a person. So it's, it's how big is the market? How much does it cost to, to get a user? And then how you're going to monetize. And then that's a really tricky question for startups, especially ones like mine that are really laser focused on getting big quickly. Like many social networks, you know, they focus on scale and then they focus on revenue. So if that's your game plan, that's a very special type of investor, um, especially if you don't live in Silicon Valley, even here in Austin, which is pretty tech savvy. It's hard to find an investor that can stomach I don't have a plan to monetize yet. I, we were, we we're going to get serious scale and then we're either going to get acquired or then we'll worry about monetizing. So that kind of goes back to finding the right investor for you. But it's not about quantity. It's, a, it's about is there an unmet need and have you proven that you can fill it and how big is this need? Because if you're raising an angel round, they know that no one's heard of you. Whether you have 10,000 or 50,000, I mean, there's hundreds of millions of people that use social networks. Those numbers mean nothing. Um, and even raising an A round, because we're starting to think about that as well. And I worry about, oh, do we need 20,000? Do we need 100,000 users? It doesn't really matter, because if you're raising an A round, they know you're just now getting to the point of scaling that no one's heard of you. It comes down to, you know, are you meeting an unmet need? Is it, and is it a big enough market? Yeah, I mean... Uh, I think what's good is that I uh, took uh, the 160 odd episodes a few weeks ago and just went through some of the biggest themes to come out. And one of the biggest themes that to come out of the show uh, over the uh, year that's been running is the the ability to to meet an unmet, unmet need and to solve a problem. And uh, you've just kind of reinforced that as well. So uh, I think we all need to think about these because we all get carried away with uh, what apps can do and the functionality of them and the features. But really, I think what we have to remind ourselves of right now and listen, people listening can also take this on board is, is, is what uh, unmet need is, are we actually trying to solve here? And I would add that, in my opinion, there's, there's two types, right? There's the unmet need where like StoryPress, you know, people are not going home and telling stories orally right now for the most part. You know, if there was a really fun, creative way to do it, would they do it? Is kind of our value proposition. But there, there are other apps that are simply better mousetraps. And I think that those people, that's not a bad thing. You have to just embrace that and run with it. If Instagram takes three steps to get A to B, and you could do it in one step and have a better product, don't be shy to tell that to investors. In fact, 
a lot of investors like to see that there's big demand for what you're trying to sell. I think I was in a tougher position going with this unmet need because then you're quite literally in the if we build it, they will come scenario. If you have a better mousetrap, the next PowerPoint, just shit, you, you, you're in a superior position in some ways because you know there's a demand. You know people will pay for it. You know the size of the market. So I would say don't, don't feel the need to go down that unmet need route. If you're a better mousetrap, just run with it and own it. Yeah, and I think that's another big opportunity. Uh, one of the segments of this show that we t- typically talk about is uh, coming up with an idea for an app. Uh, something that people can actually take on board. And uh, I, I guess what you've just reinforced there, Mike, is uh, that uh, because apps are becoming so popular and so useful, uh, wildly useful, as we've heard in previous shows, that uh, the, the actual functionality of them, are, uh, they're actually getting sliced up and uh, you know there's, there's more narrow apps to do specific things. Whereas uh, you know, previously we'd expect the app to do everything. Now, now we would, you know, would quite happily use four or five apps to do the same thing, but each each one of them does it spe- specifically and great, great, you know. So, uh, I guess there's the opportunity. Um, I was going to just ask you outright, you know, do you have any other app ideas that you're willing to share with us? Um, if you have, that's great. If not, we've got another way of fleshing it out from you. Um, I can talk. Well, I'm never short on ideas, but what I have tried to do since you know raising money a year ago is to focus all my creativity on StoryPress. So rather than jumping one idea to the next like I've done before as a serial entrepreneur, now it's, okay, StoryPress is you know, a great way to tell stories, right? How do I focus on my innovation there? So one example is now we want to you know, have better collaboration tools. So if I start a story and I want someone you know, in my wedding party or in my fraternity to add to it, you know, I can collaborate with them. If I want to use a phone, let's say like we're doing now, if I want to you know, create a story with my mom who's 1,800 miles away, I can do it inside of the app from a, a dial pad we're building. So I, I now focus all my creative energy on how to make story press better. So I have a lot of new ideas, but I've learned to harness them. I will say that before story press, I had done two other startups. And one of them, I had a moderate success. We sold it to Sprint. And it was um, not a life-changing amount of money, but it was a personal security application that was built around a real use case of my mom, who was an insurance agent going into strangers' homes every day selling insurance. And you would tell your phone to, hey, this meeting is 30 minutes, so you set your, this alarm for 35 minutes. And if you don't put in a pin to stop the countdown, it would tell your emergency contacts where you are. What a great idea. <laughs> what yeah, a great idea. That's amazing. So, very simple app. We built that one for 10000 and uh, Sprint, a lot, a lot of you know telecommunication companies now have you know track your kids type applications. So um, we had a very small exit, but uh, still a win nonetheless. But I, I have no shortage of ideas. Um, I think there's uh, like security, obviously, is a big market. But now I've I've become quite good at focusing it on the StoryPress platform. Yeah, and I, I get, what I'm learning from that, Mike, is that uh, it's important to to almost take what you're doing and try and keep it really focused, laser focused and keep narrowing down and, and slicing it up and, and going deeper into the, the, the stuff that you're actually doing. So uh, that could work for you. It can work for me with the podcast or my apps. And yeah, I, I do. I, I really fell into that trap as well myself as uh, being attracted to lots of different things. 
And uh, you just can't help it, can you? You just get drawn all over the place uh, sometimes. I mean, I, I used to, and I still have a list somewhere of all my ideas. I'll come back to later. But um, I, I have now, you know, come to terms with, from an innovation standpoint, StoryPress is never done. There's always going to be another wow factor, another trip, uh, another card up our sleeve. And so I, I can now focus, you know, what is the next big thing for StoryPress? You know, not as what's the next next big thing, period. And that's, it, it's had a huge impact on my quality of life as a CEO because and I pitched the idea over a year ago. I raised the money, hired the developers and designers, and they got to work. And then not that executing is boring, but I still need a creative outlet. So there was a time when, like, I still kept my list of what I'm going to do next. But, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. But I, I have learned, and I think, you know, Sounds like you have too. Can you focus your creativity on making this better and not, you know, what else do I want to solve today? Yeah, absolutely. Very worthwhile, worthwhile being reminded of that. So, Mike, the other thing we do on this show is ask our guests uh, to maybe uh, highlight one or two uh, apps, one of some of your favorite apps that you have on your phone as an entrepreneur that you could uh, help us find. Uh, maybe apps that you think we've not heard before, uh, so something that's potentially new to us. Uh, uh, yeah, so would you be able to pull out your phone and, and give us one or two uh, apps, uh, other than StoryPress, obviously? Um, yeah, and one of them is somewhat well-known. One may not be. One is called Wonderlist. I believe it's a German company, and it's a to-do list, um, but it's, it's very organized. Uh, you can assign stuff to team members. Uh, it's synced between all my devices. It's just a very simple to-do list. And, you know, as any entrepreneur, you know, if they haven't learned yet, you have to stay organized. And as a company of one or two, I could probably get away with doing it all mentally. But we have four, four full-time people, including myself, contractors, consultants, designers, investors, board members. So I now have a pretty long to-do list that I can prioritize and have auto-reminders. So I like Wonderlist from a reminder standpoint. And another one that I found that uh, technical entrepreneurs will like is called Pingdom, P-I-N-G-D-O-M. And I believe it's free. And what it does is you put in your website URL and every 60 seconds forever, it just pings your URL to make sure your app is alive. And you can tell it like every one minute, every five, if it's down for more than a minute, you know, text me. Um, so A, you're notified in real time if your site is down. And secondly, if you look at the app, it has just these great graphs. So over the last 30 days, I can see my uptime, my downtime, um, and nice green and red charts. So I think Pingdom is great for technical entrepreneurs and Wonderlist is just a general organizer. Uh, two great apps, and I'm going to add those to the list. And so uh, if you're listening and you want to go and find uh, the list of previous guest uh, apps, just go to theappguy.co and uh, sign up there and you can get the report where all these apps are listed. So Mike, before we say goodbye then, uh, perhaps you could just spend the last, uh, I guess we, we really probably need to flesh out from you, um, StoryPress and, uh, I mean, I should have probably asked this at the start, but uh, what, uh, it, what it does uh, and how it is unique and, and such a, a game changer in, in terms of uh, what it's trying to do. So StoryPress focuses on, focuses on the, authenticity and importance of someone's own voice. And this started with a very real use case, just like the, my security app with my mom. This started with my grandma, who's 84 years old, and got an iPad about two years ago. 
and asked if it could record her voice. And I said, sure, of course. I think it comes with a microphone app. Why? And she said, I'm 84 years old. You know, I don't know how long I'm going to have all my memories, but there's certain stories that I need to document. There are certain relatives that I've never met, that they've been lo- they were lost in the Holocaust when they were kids, and they don't have kids of their own. There's just certain people that more or less only exist in people's you know, minds now, other than a birth certificate somewhere. So I'm like, that's a great use for a microphone. Let me go pick one for you. So I did some research on iTunes, and there's no shortage of recording apps, but I realized there were three problems. One, you know, my grandma's 84 years old. The, the interface for a biography-type story is not correct. These are just giant black-and-white microphones, you know, red or green, on or off. It's cold. It's dark. It's not something you're, you want to spend time with. So I realized the interface wasn't right. Second thing I noticed was, okay, what if she actually does it? You know, she's in New York. I'm in Texas. Uh, she doesn't use Dropbox. She doesn't use email. How am I going to get this, you know, four-hour MP3 from her? I'm going to have to send my mom down there to hook it up. It would be a pain in the neck. So second problem was, what am I going to do with it when she's done? And the third problem was, even if I figured out the first two, she's probably not actually going to do it because it sounds like a great idea, but it's a lot of work. And tape recorders have been around forever, and most people don't sit and tell their biography. So I realized we have to make it easy. We have to make it fun, almost like a game. So we came up with the concept of story guides. So Story Press can actually interview you if you don't know where to begin. So we made one for what, what was it like growing up? What did you want to be uh, when you were a teenager? How did you meet your spouse? And each one has five or seven questions, and you can answer it and tell a story. And that was Story Press 1.0. And we learned after that that I designed it for the 85-year-old, but it was really their children, the 55-year-olds, the baby boomers who were downloading it and doing it with their parents and uh, baby boomers can handle much more tech savviness because we made this for the 85-year-old, but the 55-year-old knows what following someone is, knows what liking, uh, knows how to add photos and videos. So then we designed 2.0 around that baby boomer demographic, which was, to use an analogy, much more of like the Pinterest of stories. And we launched that only about 91 days ago. But in the last 90 days, we've really learned that, okay, we did well with the seniors, we think we can, we've made it easy for the baby boomers, but you know, most of our team is in the 30s. How do we bring it down to something we would use every day, you know, the biggest demographic if we want to go social and be viral? So now we've made it even easier, and now we've really taken on the Instagram of stories where just by turning on your photo, the, turning on the camera, you can take a photo, take a video. You can add some audio on top of it. One click, you hit share. It's on StoryPress, Facebook, and Twitter, and really kind of modeled it on that in-the-moment use case, but I think it was, in hindsight, very lucky and very strategic. We started with the seniors and worked our way to the 20-somethings rather than starting with the 20-somethings and not being able to do the seniors. So that's kind of our evolution and the culmination of everything we've learned. It's available now on, on the iTunes store, but the flagship we're submitting now and should be ready early November. That that is great. So uh, everyone listening, if you want to download it, uh, go ahead and you'll find all the links to the show notes. It's episode 168. Just go to theappguy.co, look for Mike Davis, uh, episode 168, and you'll see all the links to uh, the app and uh, to Mike. So we'd love to know how to connect with you, Mike, how to reach out. I'm sure you've inspired me and like a lot of people listening. So how can we actually uh, connect with you? Uh through Twitter would be a good one. So um, my personal one is mdavis65, and the StoryPress, it's a StoryPress app. 
Uh, those are the Twitter. There's also a contact us on our website uh, for storypress.com. If you just hit about, you would find the contact information. All those go to me. We're still a, a tiny company, so I don't have anyone to delegate emails to, but that's fine. They all go to me. Uh, but I would say, you know, Twitter um, would be great. And then also through uh, the contact us on the website. Well, Mike, it just leaves me to say it's been a wonderful journey going through this with you. I've uh, learned an enormous amount and taking a lot on board and I no doubt it's going to be really helpful to us. So thank you very much for uh, coming on board and, and telling us your story and we wish you all the success and you're obviously welcome back anytime when you, you want to give us an update and tell us how it's going. So, Mike, uh, thanks for joining us on the App Guy podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. Everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can build your own things that other people can use. The App Guy Podcast 